Let's pray. God, we're excited to be in this book. We're excited to open up your word as a group and see how you would speak to us. And so we pray that we would have hearts that are ready to listen. We want to not not walk away from this book unchanged. We want to be touched and impacted and uh, respond better to the truths about who you are and what you've done. So we pray that you would do that work in our hearts tonight, God, for your glory. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So the book of Romans, we've said it last week, we'll probably say it every week that we're going through it, but uh, Romans is a little bit unique out of Paul's books that he would write to the churches because Romans was not written to a church he had started or pastored. It was not written to a, a personal friend. And it was written to a church that he hadn't been to, uh, largely to people he hadn't met. And so because of that, Paul doesn't have to uh, spend a lot of the book addressing issues. He doesn't have to you know, encourage certain people to get along or, or fix heresies. He's just writing a letter basically to say, hello, I'm praying for you. I'd love to come see you. And while I'm at it, I just think it might be nice to reflect for a little while on what the gospel is and what does it mean uh, when we say we're a Christian. And so we wind up with really uh, just one of the most incredible explanations of the gospel that we have anywhere in scriptures or one of the most succinct, just point by point, you know, blow you away every, every time you open it. And so we talked about last week... Um, you know, the book is broken up into a couple of different sections. If it helps you to think of it this way, it helps me, so I'll keep saying it. Uh, Romans, you can think of, in a sense, like a great theological city. And there's four big buildings in it. As Paul's going to go through the book, you're going to come, first of all, to the courthouse. So basically, we're going to look, first five chapters, who are we? We are guilty. We are sinners. We are in need of a Savior. And then we're going to come to the power plant, because we're going to understand, hey, we need to respond to what God has done, we need to respond to the gospel, to the idea that Jesus died and rose for our sins and that he's taken away our sins, but now we want to live appropriately in response to that. But we fall short. We aren't very good at doing good. And so we need to understand the power of God and how it impacts our lives. And then he'll move on and he'll touch uh, on the idea of, okay, we've, we're going to talk, and we'll talk about it a lot tonight and next week, um, We'll talk about the idea of how we're made righteous, and we're made righteous apart from the Old Testament law. And so then the, Paul's going to answer questions about, so what does that do to the Jewish people? Does that, um, you know, does that leave them out of salvation? And he's going he's to take a couple chapters to address that, and then he's going to finish the book, uh, if you think of it as a church. He's going to just say, hey, here's some, here's some great things you should bear in mind as a church, as a congregation of believers. But so tonight we're going to be in chapters three and four, so we're still in the courthouse, if you will. We're still looking at uh, who are we and just how badly do we need the Lord. And so we talked about last week um, that, you know, in chapters one and two, really Paul is, is laying out this idea that we are all sinners. And so chapter one, he talks about the unrighteous person. The person who just, you know, I do the wrong thing, I know it's the wrong thing, really don't care. And then in chapter 2, he's going to talk about the self-righteous person. The person says, no, 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 I'm actually pretty good. You know, I never killed anybody. I never did this or that. You know, I'm a pretty good person. And Paul's going to explain, no, basically the moment you claim that you understand right from wrong, you're demonstrating that you actually understand that there are rules. And that means you understand that God is put the rules in place and you don't keep them all and God gets to set the standard. And so 
perfection is what's required to attain to the holiness of, of God. And so he's saying, look, it doesn't matter if you're unrighteous. It doesn't matter if you're self-righteous. It doesn't matter if you're a Jewish person or a Gentile person. We're all guilty. And so as we open up chapter 3, we're going to sort of carry that idea out a little bit. And so he's going to say, basically running in from the end of chapter 2, chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew? What is the profit of circumcision? And he's using circumcision as sort of the, the sum total of the law of the Old Testament. Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. So in chapter 2, Paul addresses the fact that really circumcision can't save you and being Jewish won't save you. And so he, Paul will do this all throughout Romans. He'll ask a hypothetical question and then he'll answer it. And which is sometimes nice. It's sometimes a little bit, it can kind of throw you a loop if you're not, if you're skimming. Um, but so he gets done in chapter 2 saying, you know, being Jewish isn't going to make you any more righteous in God's eyes. And then he's kind of like, hey, just before you take that and use that to justify anything like anti-Semitism, back up a second. He's going to say, what advantage does a Jewish person have? Much. There's all kinds of advantage, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. What's the advantage of being Jewish? The advantage is they had the word of God. They had the law. And what does the law do? The law brings you to an awareness quicker than anything else of how desperately you need the Lord. And so being Jewish will not save you, but being Jewish, having the law of God brings you to that point of I'm broken much, much quicker. So verse 5, he goes on. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Again, he's asking hypothetical. Verse 6, certainly not. For how then would God judge the, the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. So what he's doing, he's looking at, okay, so I just said being Jewish won't make you righteous. And then I just said being Jewish actually goes a long way because to the Jewish people were committed the oracles of God. And so now what am I saying? Am I saying that, hey, their unrighteousness is, you know, if their unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, the fact that they don't live up to the law demonstrates how righteous the law is. He's saying, does that put God in a bad light? No. Because what's the idea here? The idea is, you know, you judge the players by the rules. You don't judge the rules by the players. When you have a game, if you lose, it doesn't mean the rules are bad. It means you lost, right? And if you change the rules so that you can win, it might be a game, but it's not the game you started playing. And so what he's saying here is, hey, look, the fact that people sin... Even the fact that the Jewish people have sinned, even when they've had the law of God, doesn't mean the law of God is bad. It just demonstrates that the Jewish people, like the Gentile people, like the self-righteous people, like the unrighteous people, they're all in need of a Savior. And so verse 9 of chapter 3, what then? Are we better than they? So he's like, okay, now it kind of looks like I'm, you know, I'm wailing on the Jewish people. So are we better? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, and now he's going to take a bunch of statements out of the, the Old Testament and he'll kind of string them together. Um, 
If your Bible has footnotes, it should give you all the verses. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, verse 20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So if you're reading along, verses 10 through 18, what's the idea? Who's righteous? Nobody. It's a summary of where we've covered so far. It doesn't matter if you are unrighteous. It doesn't matter if you are self-righteous. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish. It doesn't matter if you're not Jewish. It doesn't matter if you've been circumcised in a physical sense. It doesn't matter if you haven't. You are a sinner. You do not do righteous. There is not one of us who does good. And he emphasizes it in case you missed it. No, not one. There is none. There is none. They have all. There is none. There is not one. There is nobody who can look at the gospel and say, yeah, I've attained the holiness of God. And we talked about, you know, in chapter 1, verse 16, sort of the summary of the book. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The just shall live by faith. We talked about this last week, right? If you were to go around and say, are you a Christian? It's the same question as if you go around saying, do you have the power of God and the righteousness of God in your life? Because the gospel in chapter 1, verse 16, is the power of God to salvation. And he says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. If you are a Christian, then you need to understand you have the power of God and the righteousness of God. And Paul is then going to just basically take a step back and say, now everybody needs to understand, nobody has the power of God, and the righteousness of God apart from the gospel. Gospel is just a Greek word. It means good news. That's what we're describing as Christians when we say that Jesus Christ is God. He came to earth, took on the form of a man. He was fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life. He died to pay the penalty for our sins, and he rose from the dead, right? He conquered sin. He defeated death. If you believe that, then you have the power of God and the righteousness of God, but there is none righteous. No, not one. So this whole book is about having and receiving the power of God and the righteousness of God through the gospel. But before Paul's going to dive into that, he wants to make sure we all understand we are not going to get anywhere close to this any other way. Christianity is a one-way street. You are not going to ascend to God. God is going to come to you and save you. And so, so he wants to make sure we have got to understand, if you cannot wrap your head around this, then nothing else in the book of Romans will make any sense. There is none good, no. There is not one. Nobody is righteous. And then he says, for, and, you know, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, verse 19, and then verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, 
For by the law is the knowledge of sin. He's going to make a point here, and we'll transition as we wrap up chapter 3. The law will not make you righteous. The law is not going to make you righteous. What is the law? The law is like a mirror. The law shows you how unrighteous you are. Right? We look at a mirror and realize the barn needs to get painted. Right? Things need to change when we look in a mirror. And, and the mirror does not fix the way we look. The mirror just shows us that we're in need of some fixing or some changing or some, you know, things got to happen, right? Um, so, but the mirror itself does not make us look nicer. It just shows us what's there. The law is the same way. The law doesn't make a person righteous. The law demonstrates that we are unrighteous. That's why, as Christians, we still read the Old Testament. We want to be reminded of, oh yeah, we are not going to attain righteousness on our own. Now, verse 21, we've, we've kind of, you know, we've bummed everybody out all the way up through here, right? <clears throat> we've successfully demonstrated this is not like positive affirmation right here, right? This is not positive thinking. This is not, this is not anything that, that popular culture would have you believe, right? We're all evil. That's not really in the self-help section of the, of the bookstore. But, but he's going to shift, shift gears here. Verse 21, but now... The righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Notice, what are we talking about now? We're talking about the righteousness of God. And how is it received? It's apart from the law. The righteousness of God has nothing to do with how well do you keep God's rules. Paul is talking about something that is bigger than that. This is apart from the law. This is beyond a list of rules. It's, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. To all and on all who believe. We are talking about a righteousness that is accessible to everyone, not because of what you do, but because of what God has done. And it's accepted, it's received, it's... it's it's manifested in your life through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 23. For all... No, sorry, the end of verse 22. Sorry, my Bible cuts it up funny. For there is no difference. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In case we missed the point earlier in the first three chapters, he's going to just remind us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being, verse 24, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So we are justified freely by his grace. Through faith. Okay, what is justified? The easiest way to remember justified, it's kind of cheesy, but it works. When you're justified, it means that God makes it just as if I'd never sinned. That's what it means to be justified, right? We're, we're told, uh, we're given the illustration in the Old Testament, the book of Zechariah. He said that he had a vision of one of the priests standing before the, before the Lord, and Satan's there ready to accuse him. And the priest is clothed in all kinds of filthy garments, and they're his sins, and God says, take those off. 
and clothe them in white, right? When we're justified, it's just as if I'd never sinned. Satan comes before the Lord and he says, look at what this person's done. Look at all the reasons that they don't deserve your love. Look at all the reasons you should, you should destroy them. You should cast them into hell. And God says, what? Show me one reason. And he looks at you and there's nothing there. And he can say, well, it was there a second ago. And God says, yeah, but it's not there anymore. Get out of here, right? It's not there. It's just as if I'd never sinned. We're talking about the power of God, the righteousness of God being poured out on us in that sense. So you are fully justified by grace through faith. How do you, how do you receive the righteousness and the power of God? It's not, it's not about the law. It's not about being circumcised. It's not about any kind of ritual or ceremony. It's about have you received the righteousness of God and the power of God through faith. And then he ends that paragraph. He says that he might be the just and the justifier. Understand, this is still justice. God believes in justice. God demonstrates justice. God forgiving you is not washing it under the rug, sweeping under the rug. God forgiving you is not just brushing it off and saying, you know what, you had good intentions. You know what, you, were, you weren't aware of all the facts. We'll just kind of, you know, this time it's not a big deal. Not everybody makes mistakes. This is not what God is doing. He is just and the justifier. God is the judge who says, this is a sin. The penalty is death. He's also the justifier who says, I'm going to die to pay the penalty. The penalty is not lessened through this. The penalty is just fulfilled so that we can now receive the power of God and the righteousness of God through faith. And so verse 27, he says, where is boasting then? It's excluded. So which one of us gets to brag about how awesome we are, exactly how awesomely evil we were when God came to save us? Which one of us gets, gets to sort of hold up our head and say, no, I was, you know, we were all losers, but I was less of a loser than all the rest of you losers. It's excluded. Nobody gets to boast. Nobody gets to boast in the grace of God. Or, or, sorry, nobody gets to boast in what they've done to receive the grace of God. He goes on, by what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. You have no works to bring to the Lord that are going to change how he sees you and his willingness to forgive your sins. You don't have them. They're just, they're non-existent. Doesn't matter what you do or how you, what you bring to the table, it's nothing in the eyes of God. And therefore, verse 28, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. It is in spite of what you do that God has saved you. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. So Paul now, he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna do this. Paul kind of, I don't know, Paul's brain moved in interesting ways. But basically what he's saying is, okay, boasting is excluded. None of us have any right to claim special privilege or to claim some sort of superior righteousness. Um... So a man's justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. He's going to kind of, it sort of begs the question, well, so wait a second. If there's Jewish people in this audience, they're going to say, well, hold on. We have for thousands of years known that we are superior. We have the word of God. We have the law of Moses. We have, we have everything, right? 
So, I mean, I get that grace applies to people who didn't have the law. They need a way in. But we've got the law. We, we are righteous because we offer the sacrifices and because we follow certain rituals about cleansing ourselves and all these things. So surely, uh, surely this is kind of like a, a twofold layer of salvation, right? Where we keep the law and they receive grace. And Paul is going to basically take chapter 4 and he's going to expound on this idea of grace through faith. So verse 4, he's going to say, What shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So Paul's anticipating a question, which a good teacher should, if you make a statement that could be confusing, anticipate it and then clarify it before people go down the wrong train of thought. So, hey, you know, if you've got a Jewish mindset, you might say, well, but yeah, but aren't we a little more righteous because we have the law? He's going to say, well, let's look at the original Jewish leader. Let's look at the patriarch. Let's look at the, the father of it all, Abraham. And, and let's look at, you know, no Jewish person would, would say Abraham was an unrighteous man. He's the father of everything they hold on to. So let's look at Abraham. Let's look at the righteousness of Abraham. For verse, verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Verse 5, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So verse 3, this is super critical. This is, this is absolutely essential to understanding the gospel, especially in light of how does it impact the Old Testament. What does the scripture say? Quote, Abraham believed God and it was accounted him for righteousness. Paul's going to make this point. This is a, that's a sentence written by Moses in the book of Genesis. Jewish people have been reading this for thousands of years at this point. Abraham believed God and was accounted for righteousness. And now Paul's going to back up and he's saying, now wait a second. How was it accounted him for righteousness? It doesn't say Abraham kept the law and it was counted him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham was circumcised and it was counted as righteousness. It says Abraham believed God and it was counted him as righteousness. Righteousness was received in Abraham's life through faith, through believing that God was able to keep his promises. That is what brings us into the righteousness of God and the power of God. In verse, um, end of verse 3, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. He says, look, if you want to do this by the law, you need to understand something. What you do is not going to count as grace. It's going to count as a debt. Because if you decide, I want to attain righteousness by the law, I'm going to supersede the righteousness of Abraham. I'm going to do it by works. Then you need to understand, God is still the judge. If you're going to do this by works, God still gets to hand you the grade at the end. And so all you do, it's not going to be grace. It's going to be a debt of you did not get there. You did not, you did not work hard enough. You did not try hard enough. If you were going to attain righteousness by the works of the law, it's a debt. You'll never get out from under it. You'll never pay it. But to him who doesn't work but believes on him who justifies 
the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Believing in God counts as righteousness. It's, hey, you know what? They believe. That's righteousness right there, baby. Here we go. That person is righteousness. It has nothing to do with what they've done. It has nothing to do with what they're doing. If they believe, they are accounted righteous. Verse 9 of chapter 4. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? Was it while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also who walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. There's a lot of circumcision in that paragraph. But in essence, what he's saying is, okay, when was Abraham counted righteous? And if you go back in Genesis, where if you're going through the Bible in a year, uh, we just covered this in the last week. Um, Abraham's, that verse where Moses writes, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, that takes place 14 years before Abraham gets circumcised. So Abraham is righteous in the eyes of God before the law is ever handed down to Moses, before Abraham is ever circumcised, before Abraham has ever done any work to earn righteousness. What does Abraham do? Abraham believes God and it counts as righteousness. And so Paul's making a point here. This is why the gospel applies to Jewish and Gentile believers. This is why it's the same thing, because Abraham becomes a father to the circumcision. And, and when Paul says that, he's saying basically the father of the Jewish people. But because he was righteous before circumcision, before the works of the law, he's also a father to any person who believes apart from the works of the law. He's a spiritual father to every person in this room who believes in the Lord. If you've received the gift that God is offering you of salvation, of righteousness, of power, if you've received that, then you are one of Abraham's spiritual descendants. 4, verse 13. The promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. He's in, so he's just saying, hey, look, the promise that, he would, that the heir, that the Savior would come, wasn't through the law. It was through the righteousness of faith. Abraham did not get the promise that Jesus Christ is going to come through your bloodline because of what he had done, but because... He had received the righteousness of God through faith as a means of demonstrating to all of us that righteousness comes through faith and not through the law. Therefore, verse 16, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. 
He's saying basically the same thing. Paul's repeating himself. Repeating yourself is okay sometimes. Points of emphasis are okay because sometimes we're a little thick, right? Sometimes we need the same thing more than once. So he said it in chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, and he's going to say it again. Therefore, it is of faith, so that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, and that means all the descendants of Abraham, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith. He's saying the same thing. Look, Abraham being made righteous by God is a demonstration of the fact that you can be made righteous by God. It's not because of what he did. It's because of who God is, and it's because Abraham was willing to believe in that. And verse 19, and, he did, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So what is, okay, if, if you're not familiar with it, what is the passage where, where God tells Abraham, uh, or where Abraham believes God and it's accounted him for righteousness? It's when God promises Abraham that he's going to have a son. This is Abraham as a very old man getting a promise that you're going to have a son. And it says here, he didn't consider his own body already dead. Abraham had Isaac when he was, I think, 99 years old. That don't happen very often, right? That just, it, just, it just doesn't happen. You don't have to be a doctor to know that those kinds of things, you know, it just doesn't work. And he's saying, Abraham, he didn't consider his own body. Abraham didn't, when, he was, when he's believing in God, so God says, you're going to have a son. And Abraham says, okay. And in saying, okay, God says, now you're righteous because you're willing to believe that I can do something that you can't. And Paul's saying, look, Abraham didn't consider his own body. Abraham's consideration of, is God able to do this, wasn't based on, am I physically able to pull this off? Right? You know, I mean, if God comes to me right now and says, hey, someday you'll have a son, I could kind of say, yeah, I could see that. Right? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's possible. Um, 99-year-old men don't have sons very often, right? So Abraham doesn't consider his own body. His definition of, is God able to do this, wasn't based on, am I able to pull this off? It was, you know what, God said he can do it. So God can do it. I don't know what the, I don't know what the full logic is going to be behind it. I don't know what God's going to do, you know, biologically, spiritually. I don't know, I don't know what's going to happen, but I believe God said he's going to do it, therefore he can do it. And that is what makes Abraham righteous. Um, and he also didn't consider the deadness of Sarah's womb. Sarah was 10 years younger than Abraham. 90-year-old women don't have babies very often either. He did not waver, verse 20, at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham's belief the greatness of Abraham's faith was the object of his faith. Your faith is only as good as what you're putting your faith in, right? I mean, if you build, I heard a guy say years ago, he said, if I build a ship out of tongue depressors and I'm going to sail from California to Hawaii, it doesn't matter how much faith I have in that ship. I'm not going to be in Hawaii, right? It just, it just doesn't matter. Faith is not going to get me there. Faith is only as good it's only as solid as the thing you're putting your faith in. What makes Abraham's faith great is that he put his faith in a great God, right? That's what established Abraham as righteous. And 
Abraham's putting no confidence in his own flesh, no confidence in his ability to produce a good thing, no confidence in his ability to produce uh, the promise of God, right? This is not what Abraham's going to do. This is what God is going to do. And then verse 23, now this was not written for his sake alone, that, I'm sorry, now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Paul says this wasn't just written down so we could all say, wow, Abraham was a cool guy, whatever. No, this was written down for us. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the things that happened in the Old Testament happened as examples to us, as signs and symbols so we can look at them and learn from them. And Paul here is interpreting Scripture in that light. He's saying, listen, Abraham wasn't accounted righteous just so Abraham could be accounted righteous. God used it as a moment in history to demonstrate to all of us that we have access to the righteousness of God. We have access to the power of God. And it's not through faith. I'm sorry, awful. It is not through works. It is through faith. It is apart from the law. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus to demonstrate his righteousness so he can be just and the justifier. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about good news, the gospel, that Jesus Christ died. He is just. He paid. There was a penalty for your sin and my sin. There's a penalty for the wrong that we do. And God did not brush that aside. He paid it in full. And because he paid it in full, if you're willing to accept that, you now can receive the righteousness of God. What happens? And we're going to, I know it's just three and four, but spoiler alert. Uh, chapter five, verse one. Therefore, having been justified by faith, having been what? Having had it just as if I'd never sinned, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have what? Peace and grace. How does Paul start all of his letters? Grace and peace, right? The grace of God brings the peace of God. It's always in that order. But what do we have them through? Faith in Jesus Christ. We have peace and grace. And what do we do with the grace? We stand in it. I was chewing on that today. It's kind of, a, it's kind of an interesting thought because when we see, you know, in, in scriptures, people have uh, encounters with, with very spiritual beings, very powerful spiritual beings. What do they usually do? They fall down, right? Daniel, the apostle John, they both met an angel who was powerful enough that they fell down and started to worship him. And these are some of the most you know, spiritual men we know of. These guys saw an angel who was so holy that they started to worship him. And both times the angel said, uh-uh, no, 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 I'm not God. My glory is nothing next to God. What do we do, though, with the grace? We stand in it. The grace of God is such that we can be made so righteous. We have so much access to the righteousness of God, so much access to the power of God that we can stand in the presence of God. I have no idea what that's like. I can't, I can't comprehend what that's like to have the sinfulness of my heart stripped away to that extent. Right? I mean, every, every good thing that I do, I think I can say that fairly concretely, pretty much every good thing I, uh, every good thing I do, at the end of the day, it might be selfless, but if I got a little bit of credit for it, that'd be kind of awesome too. Right? 
Everything we do is corrupted. It's all perverted. It's all selfish in some form or another, apart from the Spirit of God. Right? And he's going to strip it all away and say, no, 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 we stand in the grace of God. We have the peace of God. So we're all sinners, but we all have full access. And, and as we're wrapping it up, you know, we, you just... You get to a part like this in Scripture, you just got to do it. If you're not standing in that grace, if you're, you know, if you're hiding in the grace or you're hoping that the grace works, if you're not experiencing the peace, then you need to, right? It is, it's not going to be based on what you do, but it is based on are you willing to accept it? It doesn't say Abraham blew off God and it was counted him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. And so it's a good time to ask ourselves, do we believe God? Are we letting the grace of God and the peace of God enter our hearts? And what are we doing about it? Are we willing to accept? Because it takes, it takes the level of humility. Holiness only comes through humility. Holiness only comes through a, a willingness to say, you know what? When he says there's none righteous, that includes me. When he says all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, that includes me. And it takes the level of humility to say, yeah, I need the holiness of God. I need the righteousness of God. I need the grace of God. I want to be justified. And so if you don't have that, you know, talk to Dad or, or Drew or me or anybody else, really. If you're a lady, find one of the ladies in, in church and ask them. Say, hey, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want the peace of God in my life. I want to stand in grace. And, and we'd love to pray with you, right? That's, it's an incredible promise. It's an incredible privilege that we have to get to know that every single one of us can walk out of this room tonight standing in grace. So don't walk, don't miss that. If you're already standing in it, that's wonderful. Just kind of step back and just consider some of those words. Consider the depth of what it means that God is just and the justifier. Consider what it means when, when Paul says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God and the righteousness of God. There's a lot of things in here. And if you're not careful, you know, we covered it. It's, it's two chapters. You can read it in five minutes, maybe. More if you're a slow reader, fa- less if you're a fast reader. It's not a lot of words, but they're powerful. So don't just read Romans, right? Read Romans. Let the Lord speak to you through Romans. That's three and four. Next week, we're going to be in chapters five and six. Uh, chapter six is probably my favorite chapter in the book of Romans. So just heads up, I'll probably be enthusiastic. Uh, but it only makes sense if you read chapters one through five, and it only makes sense if you're going to read chapters seven and eight after it. But if you want to read ahead, chapters five and six or next week, we're going to be going through it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can stand in your grace. And so, God, we're standing here tonight. Just full of thankfulness for all you've done. Our hearts are full of praise. God, we want to, we want to receive your righteousness. We want to accept it by faith. We, we thank you, we praise you for the example of Abraham and, and just letting us know through his life that we have that kind of access to you. So Lord, let that change our hearts. Let that drive us. Let that... Um, and just shape every aspect of our being and our character. And we can't wait to see what you do with it. God, have your way with us. Go before us. Guide us and lead us. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.